It's a video game movie. Good enough. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's for the smile? Face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Alright, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So, this week, for the release of kind of my the movie I'm most excited for, which is Baby Driver, uh, Edgar Wright's new film. We are taking a look at one of his older films, uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and we'll take a look at the psychological theme of rejection. And to do that, we have a brand new guest, one I'm really excited uh, excited about. And this is Chris, uh, who is probably better known as Mr. Nerdista off his uh, YouTube video channel, which I'm a big fan of and actually donated to on Patreon, and you should too. Oh, of course. And uh, you hear his voice in the background there, so thank you for... For, thank you for joining us for the show yeah thank you for having me on i mean I, we were just talking off air but i was a huge huge fan of the show so i mean it's it's an honor to be part of it oh thank you that's very kind that's very kind of you to say so uh before we get into the movie get into the psychology any of that why don't you tell people um about your youtube channel and how they can find more of your work cool. i really think they should so please yeah thank you um so basically as a couple of years ago, I decided to stop writing about film and turn them into video essays. Uh, at the time, not many people were doing it, but I just thought it was a cool sort of venture. And, and from there, I just decided to continue doing it and transform all of my writings and visualize them to, I think my, my main goal is to show a director's style as perfectly as possible with images and, and making it as concise as possible for people to digest. So. I don't like to make it pretentious. It's very easy to pigeonhole your content when you're analyzing film, but I, I like to make it super accessible for whether you're a beginner or, or an expert in cinema. And yeah, I mean, you guys can find me over at Mr. Nadista on YouTube and, and Twitter as well. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much all I do. <laughs> Yeah, watch movies I, and videos. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say it's something we actually kind of, at least for me, I struggle with when I talk on a podcast about a very visual medium is how to kind of explain like, oh, I saw this this shot and I saw this yeah. thing. And I, I feel like I do an okay job of it on the show, but it's, sometimes it's so much better to be able to view that image as a person is talking about right, it. I yeah. think you do a great job of, like you said, really efficiently and really on on a level that is interesting for people who know a lot about film and yeah. can still be accessed by people who don't have that history. I think it, it, is, it, it toes that line very well. So I definitely highly recommend checking out your videos. Thank you. All right. So before we move into the psychology, uh, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? Yeah. So, I mean, when I watch Scott Pilgrim, I'm always reminded of her, mm. the, the Spike Jones film. Weirdly, Purely because, I mean, the, the elements of romance are there and it's almost like a sci-fi fantasy. Uh, Scott Pilgrim less so than her, but I just feel like it ties in as well with the themes of, of loneliness and, and rejection that Scott Pilgrim sort of toys with. Her is a bit more expansive, but I, I just see similar, it's a similar aesthetic between the two. Yeah, and, absolutely. That's that's actually a really great point. And I think it's it's something that, 
that I love that you brought up how a theme can be looked at in in very different tones, right? Like her, yeah. her, which I I absolutely love. I think it's pre- pretty amazing. But the way it deals with rejection is pretty pretty dour and pretty serious. Yeah. Uh, whereas in this way, like it's it's done, it's dealt with in a in a serious way, but also in a joking way. But I can definitely, yeah, definitely. see the thorough lines you're talking about. Yeah, and in terms of the other film, uh, this one, I mean, again. Scott Pilgrim is less serious, but um, Aronofsky's The Wrestler. Mm-hmm. In terms of of rejection, I mean, I don't want to get into spoilers too much in case you know some of the listeners haven't watched it. But that film is essentially split into three parts: it's the rejection um, from the public, rejection of from his family, and then his own body sort of begins to reject mm-hmm. him. You know, mm-hmm. and and it it kind of carries through that theme of rejection not as as um light as Scott Pilgrim but definitely <laughs> in a similar vein in terms of just being a film about rejection really yeah absolutely that's a movie i've definitely been meaning to rewatch i'm a big aronofsky fan yeah. slash apologist depending on who you <laughs> talk to uh yeah. and the wrestler i remember actually you know going out of my way to seeing it in a art house theater uh you know mm. one of those theaters that has like one showing a week and yeah. i was like i have to see this and and was kind of stunned by it like it's I think it's a really kind of underseen great film of the of the recent past. So people definitely definitely take your recommendation and check that out. All right. So we are going to take a break. I will talk about rejection and then we'll come back to talk about uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world with Chris. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on twitter or facebook at the last new wave all right so it's time for the psychological section so today we're talking about rejection and more specifically social rejection so social rejection happens when a person is deliberately excluded from a relationship or a social interaction this can include interpersonal rejection like peers rejecting you romantic rejection which is a lot of what we're talking about and familial estrangement so you can be rejected by a person or by an entire group of people. It can it can be active, like by being bullied or teased, or passive, by simply giving a person the cold shoulder or ignoring them. Now, of course, this experience of being rejected is totally subjective. It can be perceived when it's not there. It can be not perceived when it is there, and the extent of it can be perceived in many different ways. Now, people, of course, are social beings, but some part of rejection is a part of life, no matter what, no matter who you are. But this rejection can become a really big problem when it's prolonged or consistent, or when the relationship is really important to you, or when the person is really sensitive to rejection. Now, rejection by an entire group of people can have really negative effects because it can result in social isolation. It can lead to a bunch of uh, adverse psychological consequences like low self-esteem, depression, aggression, and loneliness. And it can also lead to feeling really insecure and feeling like the next rejection is coming even when there's no danger of it. 
Now, rejection is really emotionally painful because, as I mentioned before, human beings are social beings, and we need social interactions. Uh, Abraham Maslow and a couple of other theorists uh, posited the idea that the need for love and belongingness is actually a fundamental human motivation. It's not just nice. It doesn't just make our lives easier. It's, it's what keeps us going. So according to him, all humans, whether you're an extrovert, an introvert, or an ambivert, you need to be able to give and receive affection to be psychologically healthy. Now, just contact isn't enough to fulfill this need. We have this drive to form and maintain these interpersonal relationships. We need stable relationships and satisfying interactions within those relationships. Now, if either of those two things is not there, we'll begin to feel lonely or unhappy. So, so it's the idea of like you could be in a crowded room, you could be around a bunch of people and still be lonely because you're not having a deep connection. So rejection is a really big threat to this, obviously. And they, they say even the majority of human anxieties appear to reflect concerns over being excluded socially. So being a member of a group is also really important for something called social identity, which is a big part of our self-concept. Uh, one researcher, Mark Leary, suggested that the main purpose of self-esteem is actually just to monitor social relations and detect rejection. In his view, self-esteem is just a meter that activates negative emotions when signs of this exclusion appear. Now, a lot of social psychological research confirms this motivational basis for the need for acceptance. But very specifically, fear of rejection can lead to conformity to peer pressure and compliance to the demands of others. So it's also dangerous if you're excluded. It's also dangerous for, for your self-concept and can kind of change who you are and how you act around people. Now, they've done some studies on social exclusion in childhood. These studies will usually show that some children are popular and they'll, give, um, they'll receive high ratings from other children. Many children are in the middle with moderate ratings, and a minority of children are rejected, showing really low ratings. One way they measure rejection, actually, is just to ask the kids to list the peers they like and list the ones they dislike. So rejected children will receive very few likes and lots of dislikes. Now, according to another researcher, Karen Bierman at Penn State University, most children who are rejected display one of the four following behavior patterns. One, low rates of pro-social behavior, like sharing, high rates of aggressive or disruptive behavior, high rates of inattentive or impulsive behavior, and high rates of social anxiety. So the well-liked children tend to be socially savvy and know when and how to join groups in order to play. The kids who are at more risk for rejection are more likely to kind of barge into these groups or hang back and not join in at all. And also aggressive children who are athletic or have good social skills are likely to be accepted by peers and they may end up becoming leaders in the harassment of less skilled children. Minority kids, children with disability, or children who have quote-unquote unusual characteristics or behavior face greater risks of rejection. Now, depending on the norms of the peer group, sometimes even minor differences among kids can lead to rejection or neglect. Neglect is kids who are not liked or disliked, just somewhere floating in the middle. Kids who are less outgoing or simply prefer solitary play are less likely to be rejected than kids who are socially inhibited and show signs of insecurity or anxiety. Now, unfortunately, peer rejection, once established, tends to stay, stay stable over time and is really difficult for kids to overcome. And researchers also found that this active rejection is more stable, more harmful, and more likely to persist after a child transfers to another school than the kids in the simple neglect area. Now we move to kind of the, the romantic rejection. So 
in contrast to this kind of these studies of childhood rejection we talked about, that primarily examined rejection by a group of peers. And some researchers focus on the phenomenon of a single individual rejecting another in the context of a romantic relationship. Now, in both teenagers and adults, romantic rejection occurs when a person refuses the romantic advances of another person, ignores or avoids, or is repulsed by someone who is romantically interested in them, or just decides to end an existing relationship. So this state of unrequited love is a really common experience in youth, of course, but the mutual love becomes more typical as people get older. Romantic rejection is a really painful emotional experience that tends to trigger a response in an area of the brain called the caudate nucleus, and uh, it has effects on dopamine and cortisol activity. Subjectively speaking, rejected individuals experience a range of negative emotions, including frustration, intense anger, jealousy, hate, and eventually resignation, despair, and possible long-term depression. I think we see a lot of these um, a lot of these emotions showing up, particularly in the character of Scott Pilgrim, as he's kind of recovering from the end of a relationship and the start of another. Now, there's also something called rejection sensitivity. So rejection sensitivity is a component of a neurotic personality, and it's a tendency to feel deep anxiety and humiliation at the slightest, at the slightest instance of rejection. So like something like being made to wait extra time, for example, can be viewed as a rejection, and people who are sensitive will meet this with this really extreme anger and hostility. Studies also suggest that sensitive individuals are reluctant to express opinions, tend to avoid arguments or controversial discussions, are also reluctant to make requests or impose on other people, and are easily hurt by negative feedback. They also tend to rely way too much on familiar people and situations as to avoid rejection. A relatively recent study in 1996 defined rejection sensitivity as the tendency to anxiously expect, readily perceive, and overreact to social rejection. So people differ in their readiness to perceive and react to rejection. The causes of these individual differences in this sensitivity are not well understood at all. But because of the association between rejection sensitivity and this neurotic personality type, there may be a genetic predisposition. But still others say it stems from early attachment relationships and parental rejection. And peer rejection at a young age is thought to play a role as well. Now, bullying, an extreme form of peer rejection, is likely connected to later rejection sensitivity. So there's no conclusive evidence for either of these theories, whether you're born with it or whether it's because of experience. And the truth, as always, probably lies in between. There is a certain genetic predisposition, but if you are bullied and rejected throughout your life, you are going to be more sensitive because it's happening more often to you. Now, rejection has a big effect on people's health. Um, two researchers named Baumeister and Leary suggested that an unsatisfied need to belong would lead to problems in behavior as well as mental and physical health. And a lot of these were seen by, um, by research by John Bowlby. A lot of studies have found that being socially rejected leads to increased levels of anxiety. And additionally, the level of depression you feel, as well as the amount that you care about social relationships, is actually proportional to the level of rejection that you perceive. It, it also affects your emotional health and well-being. Overall, all these experiments really show that people who have been rejected will suffer from more negative emotions and have less positive emotions than people who have been accepted or those even who are in neutral or control conditions. So the more rejection you get, the more negative you feel and the less positive you feel. And those are two very different things and both are important. So in addition to this emotional response, you've also got effects on your physical health. If you have poor relationships and you're rejected a lot, it's actually predicted of mortality. 
And as long as a decade after a marriage ends, divorced women tend to have higher rates of illness compared to their non-married or currently married counterparts. Also, the immune system can be harmed when a person experiences social rejection. And this can cause really severe problems, especially if you already have a disease. Um, one study looking at HIV patients uh, by Cole, Kemeny, and Taylor looked at the difference in how the disease of HIV progressed in gay men who were sensitive to rejection compared to those who were not. So the study, and this was a long study over about nine years, and Basically, it showed a faster rate of low T helper cells, which led to an earlier AIDS diagnosis from the previous HIV diagnosis. They also found that those patients who were more sensitive to rejection died from the disease an average of two years earlier than their non-sensitive counterparts. So it does have an effect not just on your emotional, but on, but on your physical health as well. All right. So... A lot of these things are going to come into play when we talk about the movie, and it would be really easy to just limit it to Scott Pilgrim as he's the main character. But I really do think that pretty much everyone in this movie is operating on this level of doing things or feeling things because they have been rejected in one way or another. And uh, Mr. Nerdista and I will talk about that um, after we take a quick break. Uh, but then, of course, we will be back to talk about Scott Pilgrim versus the world. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the following films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deepwater Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. <laughs> Better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right, so we're back. So we're back to talk about the movie. So let's talk briefly about our history with this movie. So this is a movie when... You know, when this first came out, I mean, honestly, the only selling point it needed was that it was an Edgar Wright movie. Um, yeah. You know, I think I'm trying to place the time of it. I'm sure. I mean, obviously, Shaun of the Dead had come out. Maybe I'm trying to th remember if Hot Fuzz had come out. But Edgar Wright was one of those directors that like immediately if his name is on a movie, I'm interested. And yeah, I had I'd never read the source material, but I'd kind of heard like, oh, it's you know, if you like. If you like, you know, kind of old school video games and this kind of, you know, breakneck pace as far as the humor, then you're going to really enjoy this. So I was kind of sold going in. Uh, but I was not ready for how much I was going to enjoy this movie in the theaters. Like it was yeah. one of one of my favorite movies that year, and it definitely took me by surprise. And it's a movie as I watch again, um, I am I realize, man, I don't watch this movie enough. Like, this is fucking fantastic. Like, I think I've probably seen it a total of three times uh, since it came out. And every time I see it, when it starts again, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is really fucking fun. And there's not enough movies like this. I mean, you know, like, definitely there is there's definitely a place for serious, like, as we mentioned earlier, dour movies that have a lot to say. Like, I'm always interested in that kind of film. But sometimes I'm also really interested in a movie that just goes balls to the wall crazy and has yeah. a good time. And that's what I took away from this kind of rewatch of, like, how much fun movies can be and how how well this movie really works. So this was this was a really fun rewatch for me. What about you? What's your history uh, with Scott um, Pilgrim? So for me, I, I watched Scott Pilgrim the year it came out but on blu-ray mm. so i didn't catch it in the theaters but i'd heard all of my friends were talking about oh it's this awesome video game movie and i mean i was sold immediately i'm huge on video games but I, i've watched it 
honestly almost hundreds of times it's (laughs) one of my top 10 films of all time i just i love a film that it chooses its style and it just as you said it goes balls to the wall it's it's super crazy and it's hilarious and there's nothing like it you can Mm -hmm. you can turn on almost any film even films i love like i love the matrix for example but i can turn on another sci-fi film and perhaps get similar elements of of the matrix but with scott pilgrim it's it's its own beast basically and and that's really why i love it it just exists by itself and it's it came out in like an interesting point because uh hot fuzz and Shaun of the dead had come out but it was before the world's end Mm -hmm. so it was that interesting point where edgar wright had the final cornetto trilogy film yet to come out and he just made a completely different thing which i think I think for me personally, really diversified his filmography in yeah. terms of he's not just a franchise director. He can do his own, his own thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you brought up the idea of it, you know, it not being something you can find anywhere else. And like, I just want to take a moment to think about how rare that is in film. Like yeah. I think when I, especially if you listen to podcasts, one of the big complaints is like, Oh, I've seen this story before. I've seen something like it. I'm not that impressed. And like, mm. you can like or love or not like Scott Pilgrim versus the world, but you are not going to sit there and tell me like, I've seen this all before because you definitely yeah. have not. And it's something, something I've really, really enjoyed about it is that it, it attracts your, your eye and your ear in a way that, that no other, to me, no other movie had before. Like this is very different and stands out and, and impresses me kind of at every turn in, in the way the yeah. film is structured and the way the film looks. It's just, it's very, very different. And I always love seeing a movie that I can, I can look at and go like, wow, I haven't seen this before. Well, any film with a vegan police. Yes. Uh, kind of <laughs> I mean, don't I'd, you worry, I'd, I'd we will that get scene. to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming up. Uh, but let's talk about the direction of it. Let's talk about Edgar Wright, because this movie, I mean, if you look at it like just on a script level and just on face value, there are a lot of things about this movie that should not work. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think they work because of Edgar Wright and his vision. So what did you think overall of Edgar Wright's direction here? So I've, I've always stuck by the fact that Scott Pilgrim might be his most finessed film. In yeah. in the sense that in the sense that it's he's working off uh, material that isn't his right so they it's it's Brian Lee O'Malley's um, manga graphic mm-hmm. novel series right but he just manages to I've I've read the series and it's incredible but he manages to compress everything almost everything from the books a six volume series and just throw it into the film and I mean it's just it's beautiful to look at it's super energetic and Mm -hmm. the editing is is typical it's typical edgar wright you know it's Mm -hmm. bombastic and it's crazy and it's explosive but i mean some of the transitions in this film are are just incredible like i don't know if you remember the part where uh i think michael sarah's talking to one of the drummers and they're having a conversation and and one of the drummers turns around oh one of the guitarists sorry he turns around and it just cuts to a completely different location and the conversation still flows so seamlessly. Mm-hmm. And it's what I love about this film. It's breakneck speed, but it's coherent at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's one particular sequence where 
you know, he is, I think he has just met, you know, the quote unquote girl of his dreams. And there are a series of conversations that happen over some extended period of time. And it keeps jumping from conversation to conversation, but there is this thorough line to that conversation. So you never realize he's talking to a different person until the camera pans (laughs) to that person. And that I think I'm all, I mean, one part of it is like, oh, that's so cool. It's so well done. It's so well written. But another thing Mm. it does is it really captures what that feeling is like when you when you get enamored with someone and everything else kind of fades away and all you're thinking about is that person. So like you kind of float from one thing to another without really realizing that the situation has changed because you're so laser focused on this person. And I thought, what a cool way to get that across in a really, in a really quick way. Like I I think the whole set of scenes is probably 15 seconds, but you get all this information about Scott and what he's going through at that moment because of clever directing and editing. And not many people would be willing to do that especially at the beginning of a film when you still don't really know the characters yet yeah i mean there's that moment as well where uh, they go to like it's it's at the beginning like the opening 10 minutes before he speaks to ramona and they go to um they go to a house party and uh, scott just shows like a a really shit drawing of ramona to to a random (laughs) person and the guy's like oh yeah that's ramona flowers Yeah, I love that they just make that make that jump. They don't feel the need to explain why that's funny um, mm. or or make it more realistic. They're just like, you, you as the audience know what we're getting at here. Yeah. And we're just going to go with it. And I, I also love when directors show faith in their audiences like that. Like yeah, the, exactly. the audience is in on the joke. Even people like me who have never read the source material, you're mm. going to catch up. And it's going to be yeah, fine. Definitely. And it totally is. And a lot of that is because of, of Edgar Wright. I also think he handles tonal shifts really well. Like this mm. movie has to work on all levels. Okay. It's got yeah. to work as a burgeoning romance, especially when you start with a character who's, you know, dating a high school student. I mean, you're on, you're on iffy ground already. Um, yeah. So it's, it's impressive that, that you don't hate Scott from the beginning given like that's like the first thing you hear about him is that he's dating a high school girl and you're always kind of like oh like you're too old for this girl this is (laughs) this is weird but the romance between him and Ramona has to work the humor has to work um and the the action sequences have to work and they Mm. are all tonally very different and also the separate fight sequences are tonally very different so you'd never get bored so I feel like Edgar Wright is a master at handling switching tone because if if any of those things don't work I think this movie kind of falls in on itself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so much scope for this movie to have been really terrible. Yes, it it could have <laughs> it could have sucked really bad. But I mean, you're right. Like the tonal shifts are crazy. For example, the first fight with the seven with the seven evil exes with Matthew mm-hmm. Patel mm-hmm. almost breaks into like a Bollywood music. Oh yeah, part. absolutely. And then and then the second <laughs> fight is Chris Evans uh-huh. with a beard. That facial hair, God bless him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and we'll get to this, but God bless Chris Evans for being able to not take himself seriously. And I think yeah. this is especially at a time in his career where things, it's not like he was not Chris Evans TM as he is now. Like yeah. he had had some, some serious kind of box office failures and it would be really easy to not want to do a movie where you're going to mock yourself and, and play the bro. And I love that he really yeah. kind of went all out. And this is actually one of my favorite performances from him so i'm so glad that that edgar wright kind of kind of captured this and and that's the other thing i think edgar wright does a great job of balancing 
all of these all of these elements and all of these characters because you know it's it's interesting the way the film is structured and some of this goes into the writing but like you don't find out about the seven evil exes until like maybe half hour into this two hour long movie so then you have 90 minutes to get through these seven exes and get to kind of your final battle and not feel rushed and this movie should feel rushed it should feel like we are you know, throwing ourselves towards the finish line and getting through these seven evil exes, but it feels like they all get their, their due. And and you, Mm. and you, and you, he has the patient, he has the patience to kind of take his time, even within that 90 minutes before he gets to kind of our, our, our climax of the movie. And I think he handles that really well. Well, the, the great, the thing I love most is that it's, it's almost, it's not like Scott Pilgrim, decides oh let me go fight the second evil x now they sort of just pop into random scenes and i think like that's what makes it so coherent and work at such a great speed because you know for example matthew patel pops out of nowhere chris evans they walk into him so it's not like it's not like it's oh we have to go fight x number three x number four x number five it just they just appear out of nowhere and, and that's where edgar wright thrives most it's all of his films have this almost ambi not ambiguity but you don't know where the next gag is going to come from or the next action set piece. It just tends to happen, which I love. Yeah, that's a great point. He really does keep, and this is true, I think you're right, of all of his movies, that he he keeps the audience on their toes at all times. Mm. Like like even the, the female ex that pops up two or three times out of nowhere. Like, in, in, yeah. I love that you think like, oh, they're going to fight now. And then it's like, nope. We're gonna we're gonna hold off on that, and we're gonna mm. wait for another gag later to make this really come to fruition. Yeah. You know, it'd be easy to just like you know to have you know, and this is a much more violent movie, to, but to have a Kill Bill like thing where we just kind of go through each one and we mm. have these big battles, and then we move on to the next, even if it's out of yeah. order. Like in this, it's like you never really know how things are gonna work out. I think that that is uh, that's that makes the movie even better. Um, so let's talk about the acting here. So obviously Michael Sarah playing Scott Pilgrim, um, this came at a time where I was kind of sick of Michael Sarah and I was kind of like, he always does the same thing. I'm just not interested. And this was actually the only point of the movie, which would be like an anti-selling point for me when it first came out is that I'm Mm. like, uh, you know, he's just gonna, he's gonna play the same weird hipster white guy. Like I'm just (laughs) not that interested, but I actually really like his performance here. And I think some of it is due to... You know, the, 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 we talked about the writing of the film, how at the beginning of the film, he's, you know, first starting to date this high school girl, and you're kind of a little iffy about him. And I like that that yeah. gives Michael Sarah the tiniest bit of an edge where we're not sure if we like him yet, and we're not sure kind of where we stand. And I think that really helps his performance and makes it a little bit different than anything else he has done before or since. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I feel like with Michael Sarah, I'm, I'm also like, really exhausted by him yes because it feels it feels like (laughs) most most comedies are written for him whereas the character of scott pilgrim it's almost like that that exists that existed for michael Sarah to one day play that character so when like when you read the the source material you read it and even before you've watched michael Sarah's scott pilgrim if someone tells you oh michael Sarah is gonna play scott pilgrim you're like shit yes that works so well and I mean, that's what I love about it. His performance is great. Like probably my favorite Michael Sarah performance mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
And then, you know, the rest of the I mean, this is a now looks like a star studded cast. But back yeah. then, like a lot of these people were not big stars. But we'll start with, of course, Mary Elizabeth Winstead playing Ramona Flowers mm. in the kind of ultimate cool girl role. And I think she is perfectly cast and it was one of those she's had this really interesting career where you kind of always expect her to blow up and she's always right on the cusp and never quite gets over that hump into into kind of superstardom like of course you know recently she did 10 cloverfield lane which which a lot of people really loved and her performance was actually very good in that movie but she still has never kind of launched into the stratosphere but this was i think the first time people noticed her and i actually i really love her performance here it feels the best way I can describe it is that it feels effortless. Like this does mm. not feel like a performance. It feels like she has inhabited the character of Ramona Flowers and she is just there and you get why she does everything. There's no it's like there's no buy in necessary. Yeah. Well, there's there's a, there's like a really cool indifference to her performance. Yes. She seems she just walks around with an air of I don't know, like like she just doesn't care mm. about her situation that she's just existing in this in this realm and you know i wish amazon delivered packages as efficiently as as (laughs) she does (laughs) if only five minutes later just there (laughs) yeah but no she's she's great and you know she's as you said with 10 cloverfield lane i i loved her in that and i now i don't know if you watch fargo but she's been great yeah that's what i've heard fargo is a show uh that i know i need to watch uh, it's on my, you know, it's on my Hulu list. It's it's there. Yeah. Uh, I will definitely get to it. But like, I don't think I've heard a single bad thing from anyone about that yeah. show. So I <laughs> think it's pretty safe that. bet. Yeah. Um, and then like, you know, of course we have, you know, all, all of the exes we, we talked, we talked about Chris Evans also, yeah. uh, Brie Larson, I think is pretty fantastic yeah. here. Um, yes. I think it's the, one of the only times we've seen her play a role, uh, where she's not universally loved by by all the other characters, like mm, she's that's a good point. You know, yeah. she's kind of a you know an object of of vitriol uh, for a lot yeah. of these characters. She's seen as cruel. She would be playing the quote unquote bitch part uh, yeah. in this, and uh, and she does it really well. She's really intimidating. She's really like she's intimidatingly beautiful. Like she is like the you can see why why Scott has been so affected. Uh, by this rejection, by by mm. this breakup, um, yeah. and and I, I really, it is a very stylized performance for her, and something we don't see a lot, a lot from her. So I, I really enjoyed that performance too. Yeah, uh, she's great in that, and again with her performance, it, it's you said like she's like plays the typical like bitch role. Um, it's sort of like high school, like a schoolgirl, mm-hmm. and she has all of that pent up angst, which I love about her performance. And yeah, I, Anna, as well, like Anna Kendrick is in this, yeah. uh, Scott's sister. Um, Aubrey yeah, like, Plaza, like long yeah. before uh, Parks and Rec, like, you know, she is and she is, you know, fantastic in this as well. She's one of my kind of favorite yeah. up and coming actors. Like, I kind of can't wait to see what she does next. And and another thing with the direction that we didn't talk about is the what did you think of the decision to uh, have her essentially be the only person who curses and constantly kind of play with the editing. So you never yeah. hear the curse, but you always know exactly what she's saying. Yeah. I, I love that because it's, it's almost like she's the only voice, not a voice of reason, but she's the only expletive constantly in Scott's head. Mm-hmm. And I love that because she's almost like the devil on his shoulder, like prohibiting him from doing literally anything. Yeah, No and matter I, what I he does, that. good, yeah. bad, indifferent, <laughs> like just what cool the fuck is trivia. wrong with you. 
Uh-huh. I have a cool bit of trivia. Um, the girl who plays Knives Chow, she's in The Host. Have you oh, watched really? that? Um, yeah, yeah, I love this that. Year. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, she's that the is Asian her. girl on that. Yeah. Huh. Huh, yeah, I never would have put that together, <laughs> but now that you said it, I could see it immediately. I think the yeah. the best piece of casting in this, for me personally, uh, this mm. is a purely personal reaction, is that I can't stand Jason Schwartzman. Like, every time he shows up in a movie, he bothers me. <laughs> me um, so to have him play Gideon Graves, to have him play, you know, the final Evil X is perfect because, like, I'm already rooting for Scott and Ramona. <laughs> And I yeah. thought I could not be rooting any harder, and I was wrong. Uh, because as soon as he starts to fight Jason Schwartzman, I'm like, oh, I want blood. Like, just <laughs> just end this and end this painfully. So he's, yeah. you know, when I when I saw he was in the cast list, I was like, oh, God, now that i got to watch Jason Schwartzman and something else. But when he's playing the villain, I'm like, oh, great. This this will work out just fine. And I yeah. think he's actually, he's he's perfect here. He is, you know, he is disturbing. He is gross. He is everything you need in a villain in a movie like this. Yeah. Especially in a, in a video game movie. Like he's like the, the arch nemesis or like the final, the really, he is the final boss both in the film, but the way he's structured as well, he's just purely dislikable. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned the final boss and it is perfect that way, perfectly set up that way, because how many video games have there been where you play the final boss and then there's another, there's another version of him or her at the end. And I like that they, (laughs) they played with that. You got to see this like extended fight sequence two times in two different ways. Like I thought that was, that was super Mm. smart. Um, yeah, that was awesome. And, and and I think the the person who, did, who surprised me the most um, when I first saw this movie, not so much anymore, but is Brandon Routh, uh, who's really funny in this, like really enjoyable. Yeah. And I think before this, all I had seen him in was a failed Superman movie. So you're kind of like, <laughs> oh, this this dour version of Superman. Do I really need to see him in a movie? But him, his interactions, both both with Scott uh, and with Brie Larson's character are some of the, honestly, to me, the most laugh out loud moments of the movie because yeah. he plays it so serious. And I think Edgar Wright really tapped into that kind of deadpan humor for a moment. And Brandon Routh mm. handled it really well. Yeah. He's, he's, he's all like his comedy is sort of like Chris Evans is in the sense that they're both these, he he's not as mass as hyper masculine as Chris Evans, but he has this air of arrogance about him, yes. and it just makes his comedy super funny. Like it, it's you're right. Like most of the moments that I laugh extremely loudly at in this film, he's in that scene. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and who would have thought coming from that actor? But this is just, yeah. I mean, man, this cast. I mean, also you know, um, Kieran Culkin as as Wallace uh, Scott's. Scott's gay roommate is fucking fantastic. He's amazing. Johnny Simmons as young Neil. I mean, it's just like there's not a weak spot in this cast. Like even the characters Mm. who are kind of only in a couple scenes are really memorable. And that's another thing that Edgar Wright does well. Yeah. It's kind of balance all this and give everyone their moment. It's yes, it is Scott Pilgrim versus the world, but the world is important here and everyone gets their chance to shine. Precisely. And you're right. You look at any Edgar Wright film and I took this down in the notes when I was watching it. Edgar Wright has this he has this eye for finding talent out, not out of nowhere, but he gives everyone like a real platform. Like you said, Brie Larson, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. These are people we now know, you know, in mainstream cinema. But back then they weren't as big as they are now. And even Simon Pegg. Edgar Wright upstarted his career hugely. Yeah. Simon Pegg's now in Star Trek and and all of that, and it, it makes you wonder with Baby Driver coming out and Saul Eagle where his career could possibly go 
It's, it's just almost like anyone you see in an Edgar Wright film, you just get super excited about their potential career. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's going to be interesting. Uh, we'll talk about this course at the end but with Baby Driver. Mm. There's a lot of there's a lot of established stars uh, in that yeah. movie as as opposed to like this. You know, and it's maybe that's Edgar Wright becoming more of a name where he can draw in these people. Whereas before mm. it was like he needed to find these people on the cusp. But like, I mean, yeah. this cast, I mean, Anna Kendrick also wasn't a big yeah, star before I, this. And, yeah. you know, it's so basically just about every I would say about 70 percent of the people uh, who he cast in this movie have gone on not necessarily to better things, but definitely bigger things uh, yeah. since working with Edgar Wright. So he seems like a good person to kind of get that quick jump start into your career. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the writing. So this is also uh, co-written by Edgar Wright uh, and Michael Bacall is the other writer. Um, so what did you think uh, just vaguely of the script of Scott Pilgrim versus the world? Yeah, I, I mean, so I basically I screenwrite in my own time and I, I write a lot of scripts. So Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is something I've studied really closely, purely from how they build visual gags based mm. off the script. Right. So, for example, the P bar, mm -hmm. you know, I, I love that scene and, and the way it's written is great because it's it. The thing I love most about Edgar Wright's films is the jokes don't usually come from dialogue. They come from what we see on the screen. Yes. But you still have to write that to some extent you still have yeah. to write how that will play out and that's what i love most about the writing in this film and also he he has like him and his co-writer they have such a tough task of bringing six volumes and quite big volumes of it's like of two thousand pages of work yeah. into yeah. a two-hour movie which is impossible <laughs> and and honestly and honestly it's it's crazy how much of the of the series they cram into the film in such a good way like everything works perfectly and it's that rare moment where you never really hear anyone say, oh, that's a really bad book to film adaptation. Even the people who have read the book love right. the film, which is just wild when you look at it, pretty much anything else. Everyone either hates the book or hates the film. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very rare to to find an adaptation that, that satisfies, you know, the majority of people, both people who haven't read in book and people who have. That's, mm. that's not something that happens very often. I think for me, what stands out about this script is just how sharp it is like yeah like this is a movie that either visually or narratively has jokes constantly but it never feels overwhelming it never feels like you're like there are movies out there and this is you know of course a a weird comparison but like a movie that came out last year like deadpool deadpool has mm. a thousand jokes a second and for me, about 30% of them land, but that yeah. other, that other 70%, like, it feels like you're being barraged with jokes and you're just like, okay, can you <laughs> settle down? Like, I just, I need a break for a second. Mm. Whereas in this movie, I never felt that because you care about the characters here. Yeah. And you're you're on this journey with them. So like, yes, funny things do happen to happen in this movie, but that's not, that's not the entirety of the script. There are also, there's also a lot of character beats. Yeah, and it's it's really mixing up the visual gags with gags within the dialogue. For example, like you brought up Deadpool. Deadpool's a thousand jokes, and they're pretty much all about dicks. And it's Ryan, uh, Ryan Reynolds delivering those jokes most of the time. Whereas Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, there's the jokes either come from stuff like the P bar, or you get funny moments with the the sketch we spoke about of Ramona. Mm -hmm. He shows it to the random person, and or you get actual jokes with the vegan police that we spoke about. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's varied, and that's why it works because it's not repetitive. Yeah, There's and also... it's not like it's not like sorry to interrupt you. It's no, not like 
one with Deadpool, for example, you're laughing at one joke, but you get hit with another one while maybe you're still laughing. Right. And it just it becomes super exhaustive because you don't know what to laugh at anymore or if it's even right. funny because yes. you're too aware. Whereas, yeah, Scott Pilgrim, is just it strikes a really perfect balance between letting the audience breathe and, and knowing when to make them laugh. Yeah, totally agree. There are also two things in the script that I and, you know, I don't know how much of this is. You know, is in the in the source material and how this how much of this, how much of this due to Edgar Wright, but like just from a kind of uh, an inclusivity uh, perspective, I love the fact that not all her exes are guys. Yeah, <laughs> I like that the fact yeah. that they throw in bisexuality is a thing. And granted, they throw in the like it was a phase, which isn't the greatest, but like I like that there yeah. is a there is a female ex. I love that they threw that in there, and I love and of course that we'll talk about later. That fight sequence uh, is probably one of my favorites. The kind of mm. puppet fight sequence that goes on there is pretty great, and also the idea of consent. There is a scene where the two of them are in bed, and she says, "I changed my mind." Yeah, like I'm not going to have sex I, with you. And she says, "I reserve I reserve the right to right. change my mind later." Or something. And yeah. I thought they handled that so well, not only on her end, but him going like, "Oh, okay." Like, I just, this is fine. I, I, you know, cuddling in bed with this pretty girl I just met is pretty fucking great, too. So I love that. And they, and there was no, like, there's no him complaining, like, oh, but I, I I think you're so beautiful. And I think we should do, like, it was just like she said no and he accepted it. And I was like, wow, what a lovely way to do this. And we don't see that in a lot of movies. No, yeah. There's always, in, in most movies, it's almost like the guy's like, oh, come on then. Or, you know, like enticing the female character. But, no, yeah, it's handled. It's handled perfectly. Yeah, yeah. I also think I think probably my favorite part of the script is the initial flirtation uh, between Scott and Ramona. Like, I think that stuff all really, really works. Like, not when they first meet because she kind of leaves him in the dust, but when they meet up again and she she brings the package to his house. Like, their interactions are just so charming and so wonderful, yeah. and you can see why. I mean, obviously, you can see why he's into her. Like, you see that from the very beginning with this kind of dream sequence intro, which I also love, which is really fantastic and ties into the end of the film. But also, you can see why, as she gets to know him a bit, that she is charmed by him. Like, you actually get it. And when you... Not to be a jerk, but when you put these two people together for me, when you put Michael Sarah, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, I'm like, okay, what would she see in him? I'm having trouble with that. But I think, <laughs> but I think the film does a great job of making you understand why people end up liking Scott. Yeah, and and I love that you brought up how charming their interactions are because there's, I mean, I mean, we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, but that moment where they're both walking through the snow oh. after she delivers the package, it's it's honestly. A really beautiful moment right with their footsteps in the snow it's it's right. gorgeous i love it and it 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 makes their relationship authentic and it doesn't feel like she's doing him a favor because you know she might look better than him or right or he's just or he's just you know bored of being with knives and he wants to be with someone more adventurous or whatever like you can feel that genuine love between them and it's through those scenes Right. And that's the perfect example of what you were talking about earlier of letting the audience breathe and letting Mm. us just have this romance instead of like making another quick jab or a quick joke or having, you know, like it was just like, let's just have them meet and walk in the snow and have a sweet moment. You know, yeah. before we jump to the Chris Evans on a skateboard and there's all the stunt doubles <laughs> and all the craziness that goes on there. Like, let's just let's take a moment. So you give a shit about everything yeah. else that's about to happen because right right then is when the movie's uh, it's about to amp up it's about to get crazy so smartly the script knows that here is a time where we just take a beat 
and kind of sit with these characters and understand why they like one another. Yeah, definitely. It's yeah. I mean, it's super charming and it's what makes the film so great and it allows you to breathe. And that's that's what's perfect about Scott Pilgrim versus the world. It It's a comedy, but it's equally a romance on every level. Yeah. I also think the film has a really difficult job because there's a lot of explanation that has to happen um, about these exes and about why they're doing what they're doing. And I love the fact that he, in Edgar Wright, instead of avoiding that, he leans into it. Like he makes, yeah. he makes it a joke. There's some, there's some point later in the movie, like, well, you got to tell me their backstory because it might, it might, it might come into, come into effect by the end of the fight. So I'm, I'm going to need to know this. And they just yeah. kind of put it out on the table instead of like trying to dance around, you know, show, not tell. They're just going to be like, mm. we're going to tell you, but we're going to, we're going to, we know the joke. It's like a, right, a knowing yeah. wink and we get it, but let's just get through this together. And I think it, it actually ends up handling it really well. And it, a lot of it honestly is due to Michael Sarah's performance. Like it's so, yeah. it's so genuine in that moment. And it's like, and it's also another video game trope, right? Like, let, let me tell you the entire background of this side <laughs> character and it might yeah. come into play later and i like that joke in there yeah definitely it's very much a video game in that sense and and what i love most is with scott pilgrim the film in itself it reserves a lot of its punchlines and turns Mm -hmm. them into visual gags so for example envy adams brie larson's character her weak point you know like her what her weakness is you you're never fed that line until it actually happens and i love that it's it's exactly what you were mentioning that they put it all on the table but they leave just a little ounce that they can visually sort of appease the audience once something happens and i love that yeah i think the other thing i was worried about when i was first watching this movie is like the the character of knives chow so uh you know it starts out she's this you know impressionable high school girl that you know is dating scott and i was worried that as you know as he falls in love with ramona that she's just going to fall by the wayside and she's not going to have an arc um yeah but i think the movie handles it really well and i love that the movie kind of ends her arc with i'm too cool for you (laughs) I'm better than this. So I'm going to go on my way and have a good life instead of like, oh, she got dumped and then she just kind of faded into the distance. I love that they kept that up. Like they had her, you know, it would have been easy to make her a nag character, someone who's getting in the way of him and Ramona. And it definitely starts out that way. But as the movie wraps up, I think it handles her character really well. Yeah, definitely. And it, what it does as well is it makes you... I, I don't know about you, but when I watch the film and on whatever viewing it is, she's very I feel I feel really like sorry for her sometimes in the sense that she clearly wants to be with Scott. Right. Yeah. And there's and she like it might be a high school infatuation, but you can tell that she's super obsessed with his hobbies and all of that. And like right. any 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 person, <laughs> any whatever relationship you're in, if someone's interested in what you love to do that's like a huge selling point right oh yeah and scott just keeps rejecting her and rejecting her and it gets to the point where it's like stop being a douchebag but at the same time you you notice that love of ramona and it's that moment where he can't reject what he feels for ramona but at the same time you know uh knives gets her resolution where it's like i'm too cool for you which is like the perfect schoolgirl response and like almost like it was a phase right the same way for Brie Larson, it was a phase maybe experimenting with with other women or or what be it. It's it's really cool. Like I love the way she's handled and how you really do feel for her throughout the film. Yeah, totally agree. All right, so let's move to the production value of this movie. So the first thing I think we have to bring up is the music. I think the music yeah. is fucking fantastic in this movie, and it has to be uh, because it you know it plays a major plot point. 
uh, in the yeah. film. Like without that, if that stuff doesn't work, uh, then then you don't understand why Knives is kind of into this band. You don't know why they care about this band. But it's like, I mean, I would buy an album from Sex bob Like, it was <laughs> fucking fantastic. Like, I was really yeah. into it. And I was really surprised by that. Because a lot of times when a band is a major part of a film, sometimes a lot of times the music doesn't work. But I think it really works here. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it plays into their goofiness and, and the goofiness of the film, really. And what I love most in terms of the the production of the film is immediately when it opens you get that 8-bit universal oh yeah yeah I, I every time i watch that i just let it play because it's so fucking cool and <laughs> and i i love as well with when chris evans appears the universal theme plays again yep because he's a movie star right and yep. it, you're right like the, the music in this film is is equally as much part of the comedy as as any of the character interactions or any of the other visual gags like audio is super important to portraying any joke yeah and that opening you talk about i remember as i sat down to watch this it like it just that opening brought back so many memories not only of like video games as a child but also this movie and i was just and i just smiled and i was like oh yeah that's what this movie is and i love <laughs> how it kind of sets everything up uh, the other thing as far as production value, of course, there's all the kind of like the coin sound effects and the sound effects on the screen that are handled really well. And it'd be really easy to go way over the top. And I think they, you know, he he tread he treads that line really well. But also one thing that struck me is the the record store that they built yeah. that they built for this and the kind of fake genres that they came up with. And it's a visual gag that's not over the top, but is memorable to me and is kind of always there in the background. Like the fact that they have genres like sad core. Like it's just <laughs> like I love the way that they constructed that and the way that it kind of sets you in in the world of Scott Pilgrim where yeah. where there's a lot of gags and there's a lot of jokes and there's a lot of things that are tongue in cheek. And it really it really kind of hits home in production value there yeah definitely i mean and the film is so like deeply rooted in its emotions right so there's schoolgirl emotions like they're extremely sad or there's a lot of angst and there's puberty and there's all of like this stuff there's hyper masculinity and it's cool that the genres like you say sad core like you could just imagine scott picking up one of those cds oh, yeah. after breaking up <laughs> with any of his and just you know like and, and it works so perfectly because it sets up this world where everyone's super like on edge throughout the entire film like everyone's paranoid or you know like they want revenge or they just want to be in love like everyone's seeking emotion hmm. and i i love that the music constantly represents that and the record store as well yeah nice all right so now we'll move to favorite scenes so what's one of your favorite scenes in scott pilgrim versus the world i know this is hard because this yeah. is one of your favorite movies but what comes to mind with favorite scenes I would say the vegan police, but I'll let you talk about that one. So. <laughs> Very kind. <laughs> but the, I mean, honestly, the first fight with Matthew Patel, the fact that mm. it, it's, it's a fight the first minute it breaks out, but then it breaks into like a Bollywood musical, right? And the, those evil exes appear next to him and he starts singing and it just becomes really weird. And it sets up this film where, every X is super distinctive. Like one sings, one skateboards, one is, is the leader of a band. And I don't know, like I just love that film because it immediately sets you into this world where there's a huge amount of unpredictability. Yeah. And, and that's, fight, I, I think, awesome that, I think well. it's a great point because when, when that character first shows up, 
there is there's this moment of like okay what the fuck did i get myself into as a viewer and it's the first moment of like granted there's a lot of crazy stuff that's already going on when matthew patel shows up you're like oh this is different from anything i've ever seen we're gonna mix genres we're gonna mix styles we're gonna mix cultures and it's just and and i think it sets you up for the rest of the movie and lets you and lets you kind of relax and not put so many expectations on it of of what the movie is supposed to be yeah yeah, definitely. All right. So you mentioned the vegan police. So let's let's just do it. Uh, so <laughs> that whole sequence, uh, it's it's probably the thing I remember most about the movie. Like if mm. I haven't watched it for a while and somebody asks, like, what do you think of uh, when you think of Scott Pilgrim? And that's probably the first thing that enters my mind. And I love how how serious that moment is played. Like that moment yeah. isn't necessarily played for a joke until the vegan police leave. But like when you can have a line, like it's milk and eggs, bitch. Like it's like very, it's super serious. And it's like, Oh, this is his third, his third infraction. And, and this is it for him. Yeah. And I, I love how Brandon Routh plays it. Uh, and I'm trying to remember mm. who, who plays the, uh, the vegan police. It's Thomas Jane. Is that who is one of them? Am I remembering this mm. right? Yeah, Clifton Collins. I think so. Yeah, Clifton Collins Jr. and Thomas Jane. These actors who are actually like pretty well-known character actors at the mm, point yeah. this movie came out. Like, I don't know how he got them. I, I guess it helps you probably to show up for an hour and you do this one scene yeah, just... and you'll be fine. But like, I just I love that moment. I love the way that that gets wrapped up, and I love that it's Scott kind of you know getting out of this through intelligence and wiles rather than physical strength. Right, yeah, and and even playing on the video game theme. I mean, Scott even re- refers to that whole sequence as poorly set up and being last minute, <laughs> yes. like it's like a like a Deus Ex Machina basically. And, and I, yeah, that scene is just it's great because it sort of plays off this whole you know everyone's trying to be healthier now, and you know a lot of people are vegan, and and the the older the film gets, the more relevant the the gags become. <laughs> Especially because like there are so many people that are frustrated by vegans, right? And right. it's just I don't know, like th- that gag just plays beautifully. I, yeah. I love it to death. Yeah, it definitely has not aged one little bit. Um, yeah. The the other scene I wanted to kind of bring up, I think, is uh, the the dinner uh, that that Scott and Ramona share. Um, I think that scene really works and you really find out a lot about them. And of course it has kind of the, for me, maybe the most laugh out loud moment of Michael Sarah's career, uh, which is bread makes you fat like that. That moment (laughs) still works like every time I watch it, like his, his, just the disbelief on his face in that moment as he's saying yeah. that line with his mouth full of more garlic bread. And I, you know, and you, and you can also see in that moment again, how charmed she is by him. Like, and some yeah. of it is charmed by his, by how naive he is. And that, mm. you know, it's another theme of this movie that she has, she, it feels like has experienced more when it comes to romance and sex than he has. And it's something that he's have, he's having a really difficult time dealing with. Like even yeah. the fact that she dyes her hair, uh, every week like it throws yeah. him off like oh she's fickle she's impulsive that's that's not what I'm like how how is this going to work that kind of overthinking I think we all do at the beginning of burgeoning relationships you know mm-hmm. and, I, and I but I think that scene really works and it's another moment where the movie takes a pause to be sweet and to be romantic and to just you know have us dive into these characters yeah definitely and I mean you say like that's your most laugh out loud Michael Sarah moment 
I raise you the moment where Michael Sarah he he um when Ramona basically says to him about his hair like she ruffles his hair and he's like oh my god my hair is too long and it, it's pretty good that moment is literally like my favorite Michael Sarah moment ever it's it's pretty good it also leans into the the kind of Michael Sarah persona uh, mm. of of being like really really inward on himself and that kind yeah. of anxiety and panic yeah that that definitely definitely works. Um, any other favorite scenes you want to bring up? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of struggling to find another favorite, but I forgot to speak about it in the Matthew Patel fight scene. I, I, I just love the email interaction, right? Oh, Where yes. Just prior to that fight, Scott Pilgrim is just reading the email, and he's like, he's reading it really slowly, and and the camera starts like zooming into his face, and you think he's absorbing all this information. He's like, ah, just a boring email, and he just like closes it off. <laughs> Yeah, that is that is a great setup. That that does really work. I think we already talked about Chris Evans, but just like really quickly, uh, that fight scene works really well yes. uh, on a lot of levels. Like I love all the all the stunt doubles. I love that 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 character is smart enough to know that Scott is playing him at the end, mm. but so hyper masculine and dumb that he <laughs> can't he he's got to do it he's got like <laughs> oh girls are watching you know and i also love everything about chris evans performance and that all the way down to the vocal choices that he yeah. was making like he easily could have played that role with his regular voice and it would have been fine but the, like that extra growl in his voice yeah. to just make it a little more tough a little more masculine a little more superstar like i just it's it's perfect. Like that scene, yeah. like as I would watch that as a short film, like him meeting that character and all the way till his end with the skateboard. Like, I think it works mm. from beginning to end. Well, yes, yeah, it's, it's that moment as well. Like his chin is just pointed towards the air and his shoulders are super like back. And he's just yep. the most like prototypical hyper masculine. Right. And the facial hair is ever. angled perfectly with that chin. It all, <laughs> it all really works. Yeah. Well, what I love, what I love as well about that scene is how easily Scott dismantles his posse of, of like yes. stunt doubles, right? <laughs> like Scott just out of nowhere just beats the shit out of all of them. See, and that's another and, thing. I love that they never explain anything about scott's fighting like from the very beginning yeah. since matthew patel shows up all of a sudden he's like throwing tiger uppercuts and spinning kicks and you're just like it's a video game movie good enough yeah it works really well yeah all right so um so that's it basically for the movie we're going to talk about the theme but this is a movie of course i think we both highly highly recommend i had a really good time re-watching this kind of i i think i enjoyed it even more than i expected i would because sometimes on rewatch movies like this that are very technically impressive can wear yeah. on you, but I think the humor and the heart work so well that it doesn't even matter. Yeah, definitely. It's it's one of those films where whether you you're super impassioned by film or you know you're just the average moviegoer, like you will love it as equally as the next person, basically. And I think that's the real charm of Scott Pilgrim versus the World is really how accessible it is, despite being because most films you mentioned films that are technically great can be a bit alienating towards the average viewer right but scott pilgrim versus the world it's it's perfect for anyone really yeah absolutely agree all right so when i when i contacted you about this i gave you the mm. theme of rejection so as you watch the yeah. movie with that theme in mind how did you feel like uh that showed up in scott pilgrim versus the world yeah so i mean we spoke about you know not the character of knives but with the theme of rejection in mind it really did make me feel like really sorry for her the mm. the way that you know, Scott continuously rejects her. He he kind of doesn't want her to be around, you know, and she's 
trying her hardest that she dyes her hair she cuts her hair she goes to all of his band rehearsals and you know she's constantly beaten down and it it really for me personally i don't know why because you know her character is extremely funny but it really does strike a chord it it just it's super emotional and again with the theme of rejection with the existence of the seven evil exes they literally exist as beings of rejection right so ramona ramona they're all basically experiments so matthew he was the only dude who wasn't white and she dated him because of that and envy was was a phase you know like her lesbian experiment or or whatever and you know that that legion of seven evil exes exists purely based on rejection really Mm -hmm. yeah and i think i think it's a great point i think rejection kind of works its way through this entire movie and i think it's it's another one of those things that that with Scott uh, and Ramona, another thing he's concerned about, another thing he's worried about is that she's never been dumped. Is that yeah. she's always the one doing the rejecting. <laughs> so when you, and I've been in that experience, when you meet someone and you're dating someone, you find out they've never been the person dumped. It can be yeah. a little intimidating and feel like, well, how long is it until my number is up? If that's, if that's all you do, you have all these people and you've never been the one, you've never experienced the other side of it. And I think mm. all the negative things that Scott is experiencing in this movie and doing in this movie are born of rejection and sadness. Like the stuff he's doing with knives, which I think the movie does a pretty good job of pointing out that this is kind of not cool. Like, yeah. even though, even though knives seems really awesome and seems like, okay, this is what she wants. She's also much younger and not, and not of age at this point. Mm. Um, so it's, it's problematic at best, but yeah. the reason he is doing this is because he is sad about the end of, about being dumped, about the end of yeah. his, uh, end of his relationship with Brie Larson's character. So kind of every negative thing that's going on, whether it's in Scott's head about what's going on with Ramona or what he's actually doing, I think really is born of processing this rejection. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and it's also with Kim, the drummer of, of the band, mm-hmm. right? She's, she was Scott's ex and, you know, she's having a hard time processing how many, different girls he's brought into his life recently so you know it's either knives or ramona and you can tell that that she is deeply hurt to some extent because of that rejection and that falling out that they had and you know when when you set me the task of looking at the theme of rejection i thought i thought it was going to be tough because i never really viewed it from that angle but it's it is a super it's a film that does lean really heavily on on rejection mm-hmm. in terms of like the relationships yeah yeah, and I think the theme also shows just how unaware Scott is in general. Like he is very much a person who stumbles through life onto the next yeah. thing. And and you brought up Kim, which which is a character that we haven't brought up. She's also fantastic and super enjoyable mm. in this movie. But she doesn't get her arc until Scott gets to the point where he realizes what a dick he's been to her. Yeah. Yeah, after the end of their relationship because he looks at it like it was a high school relationship, it doesn't matter, which is really interesting considering he's dating a high school girl at the beginning of this movie, but he's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's in the past, we're cool now, and there's this idea of, you know, especially women in society are expected to quote unquote be cool about things and kind of move on and still be friends with this person even yeah. though they had a real romantic relationship and she was probably hurt by the way that it ended, but 
you know, in order to continue their friendship, never made a big deal of it, never, never pointed it out to him. And I love that she has her moment later in the film where he says, like, basically, I'm sorry I was such a dick to you. And she has this little smile, like, okay, we can finally fucking move on because you've grown <laughs> up and you've, you know, you've actually apologized for, for being a jerk, which is what you yeah. should do, you know? So I like that. So even though Scott is like consumed by this rejection, he doesn't have the insight at the beginning of this movie to realize he has done this to someone else. Yeah, and he's very much someone who, throughout the film, he, through Ramona, he learns how to accept responsibility in life. But beforehand, I mean, like, he's walking away to go pee when serious stuff is happening. Right. And, I mean, that moment of Kim where he finally, like, admits to her, like, sorry for being a dick to you, like, it's that full arc of the character where he goes from from that rejection and from rejecting others to finally accepting what he's done. Yeah. Yeah. I totally and I, agree. Yeah. I love that. I love his arc as, as a character. I love how Edgar Wright handles it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the few movies like, you know, I think we're going to move past the theme and kind of end here, but this is one of the few movies that I've covered on the show that usually I like to come up with something where I'm like, okay, this is what I would have changed. This would be a little different. This is something I didn't like, but like, I really struggled to figure out something that that didn't work like i mentioned like no real weak spots in the cast it's all balanced mm. really well the script is great the visuals are great the direction is great like it is a great great movie and i just i yeah. you know a lot of times when i rewatch these and i'm taking notes like it's hard to to emotionally access a movie again especially on a rewatch but this like yeah. i found myself just kind of getting swept up with it again and being like oh yeah this is so great this <laughs> is so much fun so it's just kind of a pleasure uh to to rewatch this so another reason i'm glad i'm glad baby driver is coming out yeah man i mean i i if we're moving on to baby driver mm -hmm. um i got to watch it last week oh you uh, son of like a, a bitch <laughs> <laughs> all right so think... so before you get into it here's what i I'd, I'd like to know uh, yeah, I don't want to know anything about the movie because I just I can't find oh, a yeah. way. I couldn't be any more hyped. But should we be excited about this movie? Will it live up to expectations? A hundred percent. Nice. I I I won't I won't spoil anything. I won't get into any plot details. What I will say is, yeah, like I got to watch it a couple of weeks early, and it's it's honestly like top tier Edgar Wright. Mm. Like that it is feels good to it, hear. It feels like a director who he has his style and he has his way of making movies and it's honestly balls to the wall. It's super confident of what it is and what it tries to be. And yeah, honestly, I loved it. And I did like on Twitter, I, I did like a ranking of Edgar Wright's movies and I had it just below Shaun of the Dead and Scott Pilgrim versus the mm, world. So that's pretty good. If that excites people then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is a movie, like, I I don't think I could be more excited about this movie. I mean, it's, yeah. one, it's Edgar Wright, and I have not, I've I've at least liked every movie he's made. So right, yeah. that's a pretty good track record. Um, and then the one thing I heard about this kind of coming out of the festival circuit was, like, the fact that this movie was musically choreographed to within an inch of its life. Like, oh, every God, yes. every single musical moment lines up with the film, which really excites me as a film yeah. fan, like, doing something different. And then this cast which we kind of talked about earlier. Like I, this is a fantastic cast that I can't wait to see how he balances all of these kind of big egos and big stars. I mean, when you have people like, you know, Kevin Spacey and John Hamm and John Bernthal, and granted, some of yeah. these aren't big, big stars, but they are known commodities and people and Jamie Foxx, people that you want to see on screen. So I'm sure mm. it's a challenge to balance all of that, but I could not be looking more forward to this. Yeah, I, I I briefly tweeted out how 
it Scott Pilgrim versus the World. It's a film that relies heavily on its visuals, not in a bad way, but mm-hmm. the gags are visually right. And with and that's like a style that of a part of Edgar Wright's style. But with Baby Driver, the music is really like it advances character moments. Uh, you know, it, it bring it echoes like parts of the past of some of these characters. And yeah, honestly, the way he balances these cast members, I won't say much, but these are these are big names and these are big dudes as well like dudes right. that have played the hyper masculine on many occasions john bernthal uh, john ham jamie fox but you know he he always uses that in a really meta way and yeah it's, it's perfect and like even the female characters in this they're honestly great like lily james is awesome um aisa gonzalez who is uh john ham's like partner in the film she's incredible it's just another well-rounded cast Nice. It's a it's a great film. I can't wait for you to watch it. Fantastic. Me too. I can't wait for me to watch it either. <laughs> um, so one more time before you take off, why don't you let people know uh, how to contact you online? Cool. Um, you guys can find me literally pretty much anywhere um, at Mr. Nadista. That's my YouTube channel, my Twitter. I'm pretty sure that's all I use, actually. So you can't really find me anywhere <laughs> other than those two places. Um, I tweet a lot. So apologies in advance for clogging your timelines. And <laughs> Yeah, you can watch my YouTube videos. I upload uh, twice a month. Some months I may not be able to upload purely because making a video is really time consuming. So, yeah. All right, awesome. Yeah, I'll put all that information in the show notes so you can contact and follow Mr. Nerdista and enjoy uh, his excellent content as well. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. If you would like to help us out more, obviously you can just keep listening and tell your friends about Pop Culture Case Study. You can follow me on Twitter, at PCCaseStudy, or you can go to followingfilms.com where you can hear other great movie podcasts, like The Last New Wave and The True Romance Film Podcast. Or if you really want to help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and there you can donate on a per-episode basis, as low as $1 per episode. And there you can get some great rewards, you can support an independent film podcast, and you can get episodes early, sometimes as, as early as two or three days. So check that out as well. Next time you hear me, we will be doing a new release review of Baby Driver with guest Baruch from the Cinema Bun podcast. Until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. And you, I, I think a good general rule when you're podcasting is, like, don't make it longer than the fucking movie. Like, <laughs> if I have to spend three hours talking about a two-hour movie, then I'm not very good at this. Like, I'm yeah. not very efficient. So let's just fucking yeah, move really on. Point. You know? Yeah.